Greetings, fellow imps. I'm Imp Fossil Tom Henske, and I'd like to welcome you to From Nowhere to Now Here, Where Incarnate Memories Prevail. Like many incoming first years, I entered the university a blank canvas. You get it, nowhere. But four years later, I grew to now here. And when I look back at that transformation, it was the friendships that I built through the imps that were a huge part of that growth. But where did everyone end up? I'm going to take us on a journey to find them, to catch up with the friends we've lost touch with. And in doing so, my mission is to rekindle these amazing relationships. So Ross, welcome to the first episode of From Nowhere to Now Here, where incarnate memories prevail. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Tom. This is an honor to be here for your inauguration event. And, and you don't realize this, but you were the inspiration for this. Well, one of the inspirations was I thought it'd be cool to learn how to podcast, but you were the one that at the beginning of COVID started getting all the imps together. So we were get, having monthly and still are having monthly Zooms. And what I kept thinking to myself is I wonder what so-and-so is up to. I wonder what this person's up to. So we're just going to make a library of what everyone's up to. And I thought you would be the perfect, perfect, perfect first guest. So tell me about, you started, you know, at UVA coming from, I think it was Woodrow Wilson High School in DC, right? I graduated from Woodrow Wilson in 1989 and, and, and started in the fall of UVA there. For me, interestingly, I, I had always wanted to go to UVA. I grew up in DC, but my stepfather was a law school professor. At, the, at UVA, and we had a second home for years in Keswick and then in Rutgersville. And so we would go down to that area. I would go down every other weekend for a, lot, a large part of my childhood. So I remember growing up, you know, going to the law school when I was seven or eight when he was a teacher, um, you know, going to the corner to buy comic books when I was a kid on the weekends. So it was always a place that I had wanted to go. What year was that? That was in 1920, right? 1920. Yes, that's right. It was, um, it was before, uh, you know, before the card, or as my son will say now, it was definitely before the iPhone. And when I think back about it, crazy, like I was at college when, or at the university, when email began. That's how far back it was that there weren't texts, there weren't phone, iPhones, and there was barely email on the internet. Well, that's funny because I remember one of the football players had one of those new cell phones and they were, it, looked, it was like a huge box that you carried around and it had a cord that went to it. And I thought to myself, I would never, ever use a phone while I'm walking, ever. And Crazy. Yeah. Who would do that? <laughs> you would have to be such a dork, right? Well, so. I, I, remember, do you, I mean, I don't know what, what it's like today, but like I didn't have a computer. I'd have to go to a computer lab, right? And have to get a spot and work there. And like, it was, it was a completely different experience than I imagine people are having today. So, okay. So you started UVA what year? 1989. And okay. then I graduated undergrad in 93, took a year off and went back to law school in the fall of 94 and graduated in 97 from law school. Okay, so you went to law school not really because you wanted to practice law, just because you wanted to stick around and party for another couple of years. Correct. 
In fact, I went to law school because I thought I wanted to be a politician. And then in the middle of law school, I decided I didn't want to do that. So my entire career since then has been one big ad lib as I've been trying to figure out what to do with this degree that I wanted for one reason, but have done something else with. So tell me about that, because I was going to ask you about that later on. I know you're super into politics and you actually have gotten like 10 or 15 of the imps when we've been on these calls every month juiced about politics. So like, what happened with that? Why did you veer off and are, what are you still active in today? So why did I veer off? You know, when I was in college, my stepfather had been appointed by Governor Wilder at the time of Virginia to be the secretary of education. So when I was in school there, my stepfather was effectively in charge of the governmental system that UVA reported to, which was a bit of a strange experience to be. And we didn't have the same last name or whatnot. So I'm not sure people knew, but it was a little bit of a weird experience for me. And I just thought there was a sort of a toll on the family watching, you know, live in the, living in the public eye that way and the amount of work you had to do and whatnot. And I sort of decided that wasn't really what I wanted, you know, for my life. So it didn't, it didn't stop the interest in politics. It just changed whether I wanted to actually run for office during that span of my life. But when I went to law school, I thought maybe I did want to run for office. You know, you know those annoying kids that you, you may have talked to in college and we probably still know some of them that um, like, yes, what they wanted to do. And they say, oh, I want to be a governor. I want to be a senator. Like, like I was one of those annoying kids. And so, but I changed what I wanted to do kind of in midstream. And then I've been trying to figure out, oh, well, now I have this degree. What do I do with it? <laughs> So like, at what point, do you, was there a turning point while you were at the university that you said, okay, now I want to pivot. I don't want to do this. And I do want to do that. You know, I don't know. I, I think it was during the middle of law school and I was really trying to think about what I wanted to do. And you're, you're real, at least from the outside looking in, I think you're really good at sort of having a sense of what you want to do and knowing how to get there. For me, you know, I don't think I wanted to be a lawyer vis-a-vis working at a law firm. I just thought that was going to be a hard life for me. You know, the billable hour was going to crush me over time. And so, and I thought that work was kind of monotonous. So I was trying to figure out how to be a lawyer or how to have a career that didn't involve that. And I was also getting pulled when I was in law school, I actually had all of the applications in front of me. I ended up not applying because my girlfriend at the time and now wife talked me out of it. I was going to apply to rabbinical school in the middle of law school. I was thinking of dropping out and going to rabbinical school. And I changed my mind. And so being a rabbi or being a politician, like the roads less traveled for me. You know, since I, I actually went to law school, came out, got a, got a job at two law firms, and then I've sort of been in-house trying to sort of figure out a, a path that has basically worked over the last 15 to 20 years. Two things I want to ask. First of all, what are you doing now? What is that? So I am a partner in the general counsel of a boutique investment bank called Catalyst Partners. And I've been here for eight years, almost eight years. And then before that, I worked at a, in a place called Silverlake, which is a big private equity firm on the West Coast and in New York that does technology private equity investing. At the time when I was there, they had a credit hedge fund and I worked at the credit hedge fund. Okay. And you mentioned Karen before, your wife. Tell me about where you met. How did that happen? I met Karen in the summer of 1995, um, I was still 23 years old and I'm now, I turned 50 this year. So, you know, again, back in the before times and I met her strangely, um, it was before all these online things. My best friend from second grade introduced the two of us 
he was her next door neighbor at Yale. And uh, we met on a blind date on his, he was having a birthday party and we got met, we got set up the night before his birthday party. So my wife is having a hard time understanding the cult-like uh, friendships that I have from UVA. Has uh, Karen gotten to meet a lot of your UVA friends? She has, and it's interesting. I think, you know, her Yale friends are really interesting and our my UVA friends are interesting. And so it's, a, it's an interest, and they're very different in different ways. And so um, almost uniformly, my UVA friends all got married like five to 10 years earlier than her Yale friends. Awesome. <laughs> we got married when I was 27 and we were like the earliest of her friends by a lot. <laughs> Yeah, she's met a lot of them. We don't spend a ton of time with a lot of them because we're out here in San, outside of San Francisco. So there's a there's a a few of us out here, but not if we ended up in DC or something like that. So how did you wind up in San Francisco? What was that road? I was working in a law firm in Washington DC called Milbank Tweed, and my wife was a journalist at the time, and she got a job offer to to be a reporter at the LA Times in 1999. So in 1999, we ended up moving to LA with Milbank. I just got transferred to Milbank had an LA office. And she took a job at the LA Times in Orange County. And she had a bunch of jobs there. So that brought us to California. And then in 2001, I got an in-house job at Credit Suisse in Palo Alto. And that brought us up to Northern California. So she brought us out to California and then I brought us to Northern California. Okay, and so uh, give the, give us the timeline about what years approximately was that? So we moved to LA area in 99, um, and we moved to the Bay Area in 2001 when nobody was moving to the Bay Area in 2001. Okay, so you were, uh, for the first time in your life, you were being a trendsetter, huh? One of my roommates, my third year of undergrad, lived in San Francisco, and he set up this dinner for us so that we, you know, he was trying to convince us to move up here, and he was showing us that we would have friends and blah, blah, blah. We move up and then like within six months, all those people have left because of the dot-com explosion. You know, there was just an exodus back to wherever people came from. So I have a lot of clients out there, which you know, because when I come visit, uh, I, you and I always inevitably catch up. So right. what's the culture like out there? Are you, in the beginning, I know it's somewhat shocking for an East Coast person to go out there. I assume that by now you're entrenched in it, but do you remember what that was like? I would joke, because I had lived in DC, LA area, and the Bay Area within like two year time frame, And this is all an exaggeration, but I would joke, right, in when I lived in Washington, right, if I hadn't read the Washington Post in the morning, I couldn't have a conversation with someone. <laughs> and when I lived in LA, if I never read the paper, it didn't impact any conversation I had with anyone. That's obviously an exaggeration. And then I would joke, like we would go to like, get-togethers and parties in LA and I'd be like I'd look around and be like I'm the fattest person in this entire room <laughs> and then we go to events here and I'm like I'm the stupidest person in this entire room <laughs> I'm not sure any of those were true but that was my exaggeration of like the you know hitting on the cultures of the various places and so let me take you back to UVA because I want to, we got sidetracked a little bit. So you're at UVA and tell me about what happened with the imps. How did that go down? For me, I think it was a very interesting time and I got in and it's, so a lot of people get into the imps either, and if I may be wrong when you got in, but either the beginning of their fourth year or sometime in their third year. I got in in my second year 
which it just was like, I just felt like overwhelmed by this. Like, look at, oh, these are the people that I see around campus. And these are the people that cab daily every day. Like, it was just, it was very, um, I don't know if inspiring is the right word, but like daunting in some ways. But I got in, I, you know, you never know who voted for you, didn't vote for you. But um, there were a couple people I had met through various stuff that I was doing around grounds. Um, John Blank was one of them, who I know you're good friends with. But there's a gentleman who was a year or two older than one named Tyrone Simpson. And I become good friends with both of them. And my guess is they pushed for me, but I, who knows? Okay. And uh, was there like a practical joke that went down before you? So were I did all this work on like intergroup relations and had started a group called to, to facilitate Black Jewish, like improve Black Jewish relations at the university. And I think it was John and it may have been Fleming Cunningham. I don't remember who the second person was off the top of my head. So that will, that will show badly on me. But I believe the practical joke was that there was some quasi race fight slash race riot slash black Jewish fight that was happening on campus. And John was coming to get me to see if I could help simmer down the situation. <laughs> because if it was a fist fight, you were, pro you were, you were buff and you had plenty of muscles. To really exactly right. <laughs> it's like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that would have been the exact person I would have thought of to. Uh, That's right. <laughs> You're 100 percent correct. <laughs> but then if Jonathan's listening to this, he's not such a smart guy, even though he. <laughs> so, like, I could see why he would think that. But I guess for a practical well, joke, it, 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 it definitely scared me. <laughs> That's awesome. And then after they played the joke on you, they did the whole you know, are you a Z type of thing? And then did, was it to college in from there or what happened? That's exactly right. That's exactly, I mean, I think that, I don't know how they still do it now, especially in COVID times, but that was what they did. Um, and then you end up in this place and you're like, what, how did I end up here? <laughs> right, it's good. It's great, pizza, beer, I don't have to pay for it, perfect. No yeah, matter. I'm only 19, this is right. fantastic. <laughs> Well, I think that's back when the drinking age was 16, though, right? <laughs> I know you have two kids. Um, I'm wondering, uh, do you ever talk about the imps with them? And tell me a little about them. Um, so I have an 18-year-old daughter who is on a gap year now. When, when you all, hopefully, if anyone ever listens to this, and if they have listened to us 10 years from now, Tom and I will tell you about this, this crazy time of trying to raise children during COVID. Um, but she's she graduated from high school last year, took a gap year in part because in 2021 and 20, the world was completely screwed up for young people. And so uh, she is on a break. Uh, hopefully she will get to go overseas to Israel for a few months, work on a farm, and then knock on wood, she'll be starting Yale in the fall. And I have a 15-year-old son who is a sophomore in high school. And, you know, this has been... The last year has been something to try to raise teenagers, in, but they're, they're great kids. You know, it's interesting because if someone is listening to this a couple of years down the line, can you just expand on that a little bit? Anyone who listens to this now, if anyone listens to this, right, will know, will understand what we're talking about. But because of COVID, basically, we've had to lock our children inside, not completely, but substantially for the last 12 months. And... I think that's difficult for all of us, but for teenagers in particular, I think there's some special issues, obviously, that come with that. And so we've had a parent through teenagers having to be stuck at home who really don't want to be stuck at home. So well, I, I laugh because, uh, and you know, I did this at the beginning of COVID, 
I sat my kids down in the kitchen and did the typical Tom Hensky, uh ready to go out and play a soccer game speech and said, all right, listen up. Here's how this is going down. There's some serious stuff going on in the world. We're probably going to be locked in the house a week or two. Right. <laughs> and ironically, at the time of this recording, we are exactly a year today. That's right. That's, that's right. Exactly. And you, we are old enough that hopefully we will be getting our shots soon, but our children will not be. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So uh, is Molly excited to go to Yale? Is she talking? Super excited. Super excited. Her, her, her mom went there. You know, she is a super motivated kid. She's actually been writing for the Yale politic, even though she's not in school. So she definitely takes after her mother in terms of her intellectual capabilities. So yeah, she's super excited. It's, uh, you know, and I think she would have been excited to go last year. Um, but after being cooped up for a year, she is amazingly excited. <laughs> it's amazing how that worked itself out, right? She, yes. <laughs> she might be excited to go even if they can't leave the, the, the room there, right? So she might exactly in <laughs> a different room. Right? Oh my gosh. That's... I will say you know, she has got no idea what a winter in the Northeast is like, though. <laughs> That's funny. We have uh, kids that are basically the same age, and my son was looking at colleges, and he looked at Dartmouth, and it happened to be on the coldest day of the year. And all of a sudden, his uh, geographic region for college choices all of a sudden shifted to the south. So, uh, yeah. Well, I remember because I I lived on the lawn the class one uh, of my fourth year, and you'd see these tours come through, and it was like almost not fair, like when a tour came through and in, in October or, or April or May, like, who's not going to want to come here? <laughs> so, so gorgeous. <laughs> so, so tell me about what room on the lawn did you live in? I lived uh, in room 39 and it was strange to go back there. I think I went back, I went back twice, once from my 20th law school reunion in 2017 and then for my 25th college reunion in 2018 and they now have a plaque on each room where they have all the names of people so it was sort of um, amazing to see the names and then also realize like how far back i was now <laughs> so so tell me a little about your friendships with the imps both maybe while you were there and afterwards what 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 can we talk about with that you know the imps were a, a really interesting place for me like the imps as, as i've heard you describe them as like this this group of people that were all super interesting and like you wished all your friends you could keep them and have those friends going forward and why is life different than that when I listened to the promo that you did for this and for me it was a really fascinating place because I didn't have I mean I had groups of friends and they really coalesced more my fourth year but like I would have a friend over here in one group of circle and a friend over there and another group of circle and they're all kind of off doing different things. And the imps in some ways, like wasn't in a fraternity and the imps became kind of a home for me in a way. Um, and they introduced me to parts of the university that I had zero connection to. And it was just, you know, to this day, it's still a place where I find the people to be both like inspirational, inspiring. And I know it's not true, but so many of those people felt like things just came so easily to them. And I've now heard you talk about your story. And I, I know that's not true, but I remember getting in, especially as a second year and looking up to these people going like, wow, this like, 
everyone's just like the natural. It's all like Robert Redford, like easy for all. How, how are they doing this? <laughs> That's awesome. Little did I know it wasn't true, but it felt that way at the time. <laughs> it's always when we look at someone else with unbelievable skill sets that we don't have, we always are in awe, but we realize, okay, wow, we forget to realize, wow, what are the hours that went into them 100%. focusing on that, right? It's uh, well, what's the saying about an overnight success? There is no such thing, right? There is no, no. such thing. That's right. That's right. And, and it was interesting to watch people and start to learn that as I had been in the group longer and longer to see how hard people worked at whatever they were doing. Both. Uh, any funny stories you remember, either with the imps or outside the imps from your UVA experience? I'm not sure I laughed harder at the university than when I was with the imps. There were times where I was like bummed that we didn't do more. Like, oh, we, you know, we talked about sort of doing all these great things for the college and whatnot, for the university. Sorry. And, um, you know, there are times where I felt like it was a, we wasted that opportunities that we could have done more. And when I would push for things, people would say, like, do you realize how much all of us are doing? This is the place where we come to, to blow off steam, not to do more. Um, and, and that was kind of interesting to hear kind of that push and pull. Um, some of the fun things we did and we're also doing good, like I remember volunteering for the Special Olympics with the Imps, which was really, really quite special. I think when we were there, and it may have been in law school that I, we did this, but I don't remember exact years. We started this thing called the Last Lecture Series. And I think it still exists, if, I, if my recollection is correct, whereby we would get professors or administrators to give their fictional last lecture. And I thought that was really phenomenal and a, and a kind of a, a real addition to the intellectual fiber of the university. But I just, I mean, we just laughed all the time. All, I mean, going into that chapel on a Sunday night at whatever it was, and like people, I, I thought that was great. It was fantastic. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's the book, The Last Lecture by Randy Posh. And Randy, yes. I believe was a computer science professor yes. while we were at university. Yes. And I don't remember if we did it, we took it from that. And I remember reading that book, but I think I read it after we started our last lecture series. So I don't know if it was in the ether, like people were doing it at the same time, or we did it first, or I don't remember, but he was a, he, his actually was a last lecture if yeah. I remember it, because he passed away. Um, and, and I didn't know, I, I, did he do that lecture at the university? Was he at UVA? No, he was at, he was at Carnegie Mellon. Ah, okay. He was a professor at Carnegie Mellon. If memory serves, he had cancer and he was dying. Ah, that's exactly what he had. Exactly. Okay, wow. And so he was giving his last lecture knowing that it was his last lecture where we were trying to make people fictionalize. Like if you had to tell students what was the most important thing to you, go. That was kind of interesting. And we try to get people, if I remember my year, we started, we had someone from an administrator, a law school professor, and someone from the scientist, if I remember well, you know, it's amazing uh, what you remember back from the university and what was important and what wasn't important. I, I, last year, I had a UVA student who lives here in town. He was doing a project in the business school and he had to interview somebody. So he called me to interview me. And one of the interview questions was, what was the most important class you took while you, you were at UVA? And I remember saying to him, do you want the real answer or do you want the stupid answer that your professors may be fishing for. He said, I want the real answer. I go, but I'll tell you, but you have to promise to tell your professor. And he said, okay. 
I go, tell them it was the Biltmore. And, and for, <laughs> for, 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 I think the Biltmore is still around today. I but, so. you know, and it was like uh, clearly not a class. It was a bar. <laughs> and uh, I think some of my most important lessons that I learned from UVA, which was how to communicate with human beings, happened there. Happened to Biltmore. So he went and told, he told the professor and his professor said, yeah, that guy's probably right. <laughs> <laughs> He's very successful, that guy. <laughs> well, I remember the, there was a, I think only because I was in him, I got into, there was a seminar at the time um, from Mr. Mead, Ernest Mead, who's since passed away. Who I know many people of our generation and earlier and later were very close to um, and that seminar, I, I don't think there's any chance I would have gotten into that seminar, but for becoming friendly with Mr. Mead through the imps. I know there's kind of an embedded elitism to this, so, but that was a, uh, the, the things that opened up at the university because of those relationships was, were pretty phenomenal. And so getting to meet Mr. Mead and then participating in that class, you need to know those, those kids and students better, some of whom I knew already, but some of whom I got to know better was really something. So, and, and as an aside, for those who are listening, Mr. Mead's seminar has now been picked up and being taught by another former hemp or fossil, um, Mike Lennox, which is actually really kind of beautiful in many ways. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And uh, I'm hoping we're going to have Mike on at some point. Maybe I'll just remember to have him talk about that. That's great. Yeah. So I'm always telling the kids about UVA myself. And, you know, there are probably so many things that you took from UVA that shaped the man who you are today. Tell me about that. Anything come top of mind on that? Well, I thought UVA was like, for me, it was a, it was a great place and a little bit of a hard place. And I had part of it, maybe the time, part of it may have been my background, part of it may have been all sorts of things, but it was sort of a place where, because it was so student run, you could really kind of do anything. Um, and that allowed me to do all sorts of things that hadn't been done before. And whether it was like starting a, a black Jewish group that, that, that didn't exist or with the M starting the last lecture series or you know, it allowed me to think about what was interesting to me and try to push in that way. And to your point about where you started this about me getting the M's together, I think a lot of what I enjoy is talking to people who from diverse backgrounds and hearing about their experiences. And one of the things I really liked about the IMPS, and it's something that is harder when you get out into the quote unquote real world, is that you get all these people from different places doing different things and get them together. And they may not have a lot in common on the surface, but underneath a lot of that, they actually have a ton in common. How driven they are, how much they wanna accomplish, et cetera, et cetera. And to get to learn from each other, I think was, was pretty amazing. And when you get out into the real world, it's harder, I think. It's also hard to make deep friendships sometimes out in the, the professional world. But um, this group of people who came from all sorts of different backgrounds had a ton of racial and gender diversity. And to be friends with them, is it's not so easily replicable when you're not in a university setting. I think to the shame and to the detriment of a lot of us. And so um, what I learned and I think tried to do and I think I've tried to do this with you and whatnot is like, how do you introduce and connect people who, who may not know one another or, or may know each other and not realize how much they have in common or how they could do something professionally, socially, philanthropically together um, and may not have thought about each other in that way before. 
Do you think your experience with the imps gives you, again, I don't want to sound elitist like this either, but did it give you maybe more a total picture of the university because of the diversity of it that maybe, like, for example, I was an athlete. I don't know if I didn't become part of the imps, if I would have been able to understand what was going on in other parts of the university, had I not been getting together with this group every Sunday night at eight o'clock or whenever it was that we got together. Do you feel like that you had a different view of the university because of the involvement with the imps? So I grew up in, in Washington, D.C. and went to D.C. public schools from first grade through 12th grade. And at the time, right, UVA, I don't know what it's like now in the same way I know Virginia's changed a bit, but it was really Southern. And although D.C. was only 100 to 120 miles away from Charlottesville, it was like a huge distance in terms of ideology, whatever, whatever, however you want to say this experience. And so UVA was a, a sort of a hard place for me. And I, I often felt like a little bit of an outsider because I'd grown up in DC. So many of my good friends growing up were African-American. UVA was very segregated at the time. There was a much smaller Jewish population than it is now, I think. So it was kind of a hard place for me. So I always a little bit felt like an outsider. And then on the flip side here, my stepfather was like secretary of education, right? He would come into town, we would go to Cars Hill. When he came to football games, we would sit in the president's box. I remember one day I sat next to Jesse Jackson in the morning at a football game. And then at the end of the night, he was like on Saturday Night Live reading Green Eggs and Ham. I was like, how did that happen? <laughs> and then I was in the imps. And it was like sort of this like mix of feeling a little bit like an outsider, but on paper being like kind of this ultimate insider. And it was a little bit of a hard, like it always felt like a juxtaposition. Do you feel comfortable talking about the experience back then being a Jewish man at the university and when the population, the UVA population maybe didn't have uh, like a great number? Well, it was, you know, was, I put myself in positions because I was doing all this intergroup relations where people sort of expected me to talk as if I was representative of something. And that, that was, that was strange for me. Right, I didn't, and I, I don't think my experience was very representative of almost anyone except me. But you know, there was a host of things, and, and I'm sure going to the university now between we're doing this in 2021, Black Lives Matter, and all sorts of other things going on. Each era has its own things happening. When I was there, we had um, the divestment from South Africa movement. Um, some of my best friends had gotten arrested protesting the universities investment policies in South Africa. There's just a lot going on in the university and I put myself in the middle of some of these conversations. And so I didn't pick an easy road in many ways. And, and my friends um, were, my best friends outside the M's and some of them in the M's, but they were kind of came as I said from all different places. And, and two or three of my best friends that I've kept up with, you know, one is a Lutheran minister one is an African-American evangelical Christian who is a, prof is a professor. They, they were very serious people and not necessarily stereotypically UVA people. And that made both my experience really deep and sometimes made it maybe less fun than it otherwise would have been if I had your, like had what I think a stereotypical UVA experience was. But for me, the M's like, I'm not sure I would have ever known you or Chris Havlicek or um, Ted Jeffries, or for me, the athletes were part of what I didn't, I had less exposure to. And so for me, it was uh, really interesting learning about that for the university. And it was just sort of interesting, as you said, like 
you know, you go into a room with the chair of the honor committee or the chair of the district committee, like how do these things work and why are they this way? And it was sort of cool to start to understand those things. Well, it's funny because you mentioned the athletes. When, we, when I used to go back with the athletes, I remember having conversations saying, do you realize there are people who go to school here who don't play sports? <laughs> <laughs> there are people who are short and fat. <laughs> You're not going to believe what I stumbled upon. It's unbelievable. Like <laughs> <laughs> an artifact. <laughs> oh, God, that's crazy. I love it. So how often do you get back? For a while, I got back more. Because I have younger siblings, and two of them went to UVA. So one is 10 years younger of these siblings that went to UVA. One is 10 years younger, and one's 11 or 12 years younger. So I'd gone back more then. I think the last time I'd been back was in 18. But then the world's been closed for a year and a half now, or a year now. So it's hard to know. I, I probably get back soon. Charles was sort of like the place my mother and stepfather live in Reston. And when we go to visit my family and then want to you know, duck out for a day, we'll drive down to Charlottesville. And I have a sister who's on the city council in Culpeper. So we sort of go see her and then go spend a night in Charlottesville. Culpeper, I haven't heard that in eons. Years, yeah. It's like when you would get the traffic tickets on 29 when you had to like, when you would get bored and start going like 78 and get pulled over. <laughs> so you just, you just opened up a wound. So... <laughs> My father would come down for my soccer games and he would fly to whatever the airport was. It Was it national at the time or national or Dallas? Probably. Yeah. One of those. Right. So, and then he would rent a car down or something like that. And then I would drive him back. I don't know right. why, like he like made me drive him two hours down, two hours back, but that was the story for another day. But I wanted remember, the time with you, Tom. Yeah, I know. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> you know the answer. <laughs> In my mind, I'm like, I already got my free meal. I don't really need anything else from him. <laughs> Little so, did you know he needed something from you. <laughs> yeah, who knew? And, and I always used to think, wow, he must be, he's such an idiot. And then I became a dad and now I realize I'm the idiot, right? So, <laughs> so I'm driving on 29 and my father said to me, son, don't you think you're going, you're a little bit heavy on the pedal? I think that's what he called it. Heavy on the pedal right now. I said, oh, dad, there's nothing here but like farmland and silos. Don't worry about it. And like five minutes later, I get pulled over. <laughs> so now, maybe I'm like 20, 30 minutes into the trip. He doesn't talk to me the whole rest of the trip back to the airport. When we get to the airport, I pull to the side. He opens his door. He slams it. He opens the back door, grabs his bag, slams it. And I didn't talk to him for two weeks. Because he knew how much your insurance was going up. <laughs> yep. I and I just thought money grew on trees. Like, you know. <laughs> and now you teach financial literacy. That's right. <laughs> right. It's like, like yeah, it's, it's so ironic. So ironic, right? <laughs> So great. So, hey, this has been awesome. Do you, uh, do you remember the marches before I let you go? Do you remember drinking tuna? Do, do you remember any of that? I don't know if you're, if the question is like, did I drink so much I don't remember it? Or do I remember? <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. If this was a deposition, I'd be like, can you explain your question? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they were a blast. I mean, it was ridiculous to march through the streets of Charlottesville with like devil's horns on. Like, that's crazy. Um, and they were so much fun. And yes, I remember tuna. And, and I think you were going to ask me, like, do I still drink it? And um, 
my wife told me specifically to say no and not talk about that um, for the record. <laughs> we can always edit that out. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Have Karen call me and we'll we'll talk about it. We can negotiate. Okay, definitely, definitely. Everything has a price. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, hey, this has been awesome. Anything else that I left out that you wanted to talk about? No, I mean, I think whoever listens to this, if if anyone listens to this, right? I think if it's the if it's people who are currently in, uh, at the risk of sounding schmaltzy, like treasuring, it goes really fast. And you, in a blink of an eye, like there's a, there's a cliche for parents that the days go slow, but the years go fast. And it's true. And I think you'll talk to people who will look back and you'll talk to like, how did 25 years go by this quickly? And where did, where did it go? And I think um, if you're currently an imp, treasure it. And if you are an old imp or a fossil as, as we're called, I guess, treasure it also. And I think um, there's a reason why I went back and looked for people on COVID um, to the imps because there's people I cared about and I didn't see. And I wanted to take the opportunity when we were all stuck at home to bring kind of a bit of levity to each other. And I think to your point, I think if I remember your promo to this, like to be in each other's lives requires a bit of work. That work is often really worth it. And you get more back from it than you put into it. That's great. Well, you know, my, one, my favorite closing question is what is your favorite word with the letters IMP in it? So my son and I were joking about this and he told me I should definitely use the word pimp <laughs> as, as a word. I'm not sure that's right. I, I didn't know if like important didn't sound right. Impressive, impeccable. I'm not sure what it is. Impressionable. Maybe that was me as a second year when I got in. Impressionable would have been the IMP word that that may have hit me the most. I love impressionable, but no one's beating pimp. No, <laughs> no one's beating pimp. I might have to just retire that question altogether because no one. <laughs> That's is, not the answer you get all the time. <laughs> the I can't even. I could have sat in my house for like seven more COVIDs and never have come up with that one. That is. Uh, that was the first thing my 15-year-old said. <laughs> amazing. Well, hey, man, uh, you were awesome to be my first guest. I was telling you, I was nervous getting on for this first one, but you made it easy, like always. You put me at ease. You're just, uh, you're, our friendship has really grown tremendously over the last couple of years, and it's been like super this past year. You're a guy I look at, I'm so happy to have in my life. You know, you're so representative of the university and you're just so everything that I wanna have in a friendship. So thank you, thank you, thank you for just being you and being on and sharing your story with everybody. I really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for having me, Tom. I'm glad I was here for your initial, initial episode. And I can't wait to see the, you know, the 1,000th of your podcast one day. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. It was good seeing Take you. Take you care. too, bye-bye. Hi there, Tom here. Before I let you go, I want to tell you about my other podcast, Total Sense. As you may know, after my time as an imp, I went on to become a financial advisor. 
okay, stop laughing, don't act so surprised. In each episode, I share advice to parents about how to talk to kids about money. As a parent, I know how difficult that money conversation can be, so I hope you'll listen and find it helpful. It's Total Sense, C-E-N-T-S, as in money, available anywhere you get your podcasts.